Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to my podcast. A lot is going on in Israel these days. Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz are threatening to go to a fourth election. Whether it's because of the economical crisis, whether it's because of the COVID-19, whether is it because of all of the protests that are going now in Israel, it's hard to call, but eventually I guess it's a lot of number. You know, it's a game of numbers and we're going to discuss it shortly. But first, allow me to introduce to my friend and um, the guy who will be hosting with me this podcast today, Jeff Becker. Jeff is a graduate of American University School of International Service and was selected to the Israel Institute Honor Symposium for the top undergraduate students in Israel studies in 2019. And he keeps on following in Israeli politics these days. And I'm really happy to have you here, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Kobe. We speak a lot about what's going on in Israeli politics, and I think that you brought up a couple of good questions that I think people will be interested to hear about. So let's talk. So it really is a balagan what's going on in Israel right now. You know, I'm following it as closely as I can. It's changing by the minute, by the day. The protests, the political situation, COVID-19. Definitely, you know, Israeli politics isn't the most stable entity to follow, but now more than ever, it really seems to be fluctuating. So some of the main questions I have right now is how's the national unity government between Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu working between Netanyahu's Likud party and Benny Gantz's Kahol Avan party? It really seems like there's a lot of friction between the two now, you know, a lot of issues regarding passing a budget, a lot of issues with the judicial system. Now you have a threat with Hezbollah on the northern border. That some people, by the way, say it's a political issue and not a military issue. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I don't know if I can comment too in depth on that specifically. But some of the main questions I have is what's going to come out of the future of this unity government? I mean, is it going to be able to last? They're talking about not even being able to pass a budget for two years, one year. Maybe if you could elaborate on that issue, how Gantz wants one year of a budget, Bibi wants two years, and how that actually plays into Bibi's quest for a possible fourth election. So you brought a great uh, thing here. It's hard to call it unity government because if, to be honest, it has a majority of the right wing with the Likud and the parts of the modern Orthodox, you know, Rafi Peretz uh, went from Yamina, took his mandate and uh, fled and joined the Likud. 
and uh, Orly Levy stole a mandate from uh, <laughs> the Labour and Meret. Amir Peretz also. Amir Peretz also, but she jumped, she leaned to the right from the beginning. I mean, a lot of the critics that people had for Amir Peretz about what he did with Orly Levy was that she is a hard right wing, she was never a left, and he said, no, but we're going to bring voters from the Likud. <laughs> never worked, never will work, but... That's for another episode. Then we have the Haredim that automatically go with the right wing. People tend to think that the Haredim were actually big friends of the Labour Party. The first person to bring the Haredim into a coalition was Menachem Begin. Until 1977, Agudat Israel was always on the opposition and they supported ad hoc in the government efforts. But the real bond between the Haredim, and I'll call it a secular party in Israel, is between the Haredim and the Likud from 1977 until these days. So it is a right-wing Haredim government with, we'll call it, a divine leave of Kahol Avan, which also split, you know, from the big combination of Kahol Avan, Yeshatid, and Telen which Telem, by the way, is a hard right wing as well, but a secular hard right wing. And it is led by Bogi Yaalon, who's one of Netanyahu's biggest opposers these days. So this government wasn't born as a unity government, because you can't call it exactly unity. Uh, it's just a wider government. And you could tell from the beginning that it's going to get a lot of clashes within this coalition, because... People from the Likud started to ask from day one, you know, they only have 17 mandates, and I'm including Tvi Hauser and Yoaz Handel, who also took mandates from Telem and, and Yeshatid. Could you maybe elaborate on the split up of Kaholavan? You know, you're talking about Yeshatid, Telem, and Kaholavan itself. But Yeshatid and Telem used to be part of the Grand Kaholavan Alliance, and now Kaholavan. Right. We've had Yesha Tidentam who've broken off from Kaholavan, and Kaholavan's just sitting as its party by itself now, which is in the unity government, whereas Yesha Tidentam's now its own party, and they're in the opposition. So what happened? What made this split happen? And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so Kaholavan was actually formed by three different parties. Chosen Israel, that was formed by Benny Gantz and uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, two former chief of staffs of Israel, Ashkenazi, by the way, was very popular in public opinion. Gantz wasn't seen as a leader and as a politician from the beginning, but Ashkenazi had some stories from his past. By the way, stupid things, but in Israel, you know, the media can take a flea and make it an elephant. And Yesh Atid and Telem. Telem, some people have an added value, but they can't deliver themselves. Bogi Alon and Tsipi Livni, by the way, are perfect examples because Tsipi Livni at one point couldn't pass the 3.25% of voters required to get into the Knesset. But when she joined hands with um, Bougie Herzog in 2014 and formed the Machane Tzioni between Hatnua and the Labour Party, they were able to get 24 mandates in the election. Yep. So by herself, Livni could not pass a threshold to have seats in the Knesset. So exactly. she had to form alliance with the Labour Party, which under Herzog was still doing pretty well at that time. I believe it was 2013, 2014, around... It was, it was 2014, towards the elections in 2015. Mm -hmm. So um, they, made, they made that alliance. And, you know, in the 2015 election, they did seem like a real contender against Netanyahu. 
Yeah, but it was still a heavyweight champion versus a lightweight uh, contester. So, <laughs> and in a way, that's what's happening today. We're going to touch it when we're going to talk why is Bibi interested in going to a fourth election yeah. now. Just to sum it up, in Israeli politics, smaller parties like to either hop on with a larger party or make coalitions with smaller parties to, or merge with other smaller parties so that they can pass the electoral threshold of 3.25% yeah. so that they can get seats in the Knesset. Yeah. It doesn't always work, by the way. The right wing lost a lot of voters in April of 2019. The numbers are talking about almost uh, 9 to 10 mandates that went with Yamina did not pass. Uh, Yamina is uh, the new Bennett. Uh, every election he comes up with a different uh, name for a party. Bennett formed the Baita Yehudi from the Mafdal, and then he left the Baita Yehudi and went to Yamina. Can you explain Yamina and Bennett's ideology? So Bennett comes from, he actually comes from a conservative home. If you go to his family, I think they will vote Democrats in, in the US. He was born in America, grew up in Israel, and he's leaning hard right. His base is based on the settlers. So he's hard right politically and with everything that comes to state and religious. He will align, you know, we just had a voting last week about the gay conversion therapy and Yamina voted with the government and actually uh, some parts of the joint list uh, voted with the government. That's also a part of the Israeli anomaly. While a couple of Knesset members from the Likud actually supported this uh, vote. Even Amir Ohana, who's one of Netanyahu's biggest defenders these days, voted with this law, and it created a big uh, mess with the ultra-Orthodox now. Mm-hmm. So what Bennett, you're saying is that the... So Bennett is blinking to the center, but he is a hard right wing. And eventually with Bennett, one of the reasons that Netanyahu is aiming for elections is because he knows that even though Bennett is going in the polls, and we're going to get to it in a few, he can always depend on him that he will not go with Gantz or Lapid or whatever, but he will stick to the right-wing government. But yeah, you know, now these days you have a lot of protesters in Israel. The numbers are growing, even though it sounds like a couple of thousands, it has a big effect on what's happening in the streets and in the polls. Basically, with Netanyahu, you have a majority in the public that is not happy with what's going on, with how the government is handling the coronavirus situation, not economically-wise and not health-wise. A lot of people are saying that Netanyahu was actually doing everything in order to gain votes and to squeeze guns into the government. He called it, you know, emergency government. Okay, we need to take care of business. Once Gantz joined it, suddenly they had the time to keep on with the bullshitting with politics. And Netanyahu had the time to work on his tax exempt, you know, and things like that. And it really pissed people off. But I will say that Netanyahu may be going down in the polls, but the Likud stays the biggest party because Gantz's reputation is on the floor. The fact that he even gets nine to 10 mandates in the polls these days, it's a miracle for him. Mm -hmm. But I think that what Netanyahu is uh, most talented in doing is to kill the opposition. And that's what basically he did when he split, when he was able to pull Gantz and Ashkenazi into the government. 
and to split the strength of Kahol Avan, Yeshatid, and Telem. Yair Lapid is not capable of getting all of these votes under his wings. So it's hard to say what's going to be in Israel. But the fact is at the moment that you always have new things that are coming up that are a source of clashes between Kaholavan and Netanyahu. You are talking about the budget. One of the things they said in advance when they formed the coalition is that they're going to run a budget for two years. Now, people need to remember that this, we'll call it kombina. Everybody knows this word even here in America, if you're an American Jew. <laughs> then kombina is when you're fixing up things to make it work and you're rounding corners. The two-year budget came out as a political solution because most governments in Israel went down because of uh, budget issues. Because every year, the smaller parties, especially the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers, would come with new requests. And if the Likud or the Labour or whoever was in power, Kadima at the time, they would not accept the terms, then they will uh, align with other parties and go to election. These days, it's very complicated because if you're not passing the budget by August 25th, then you don't need a majority in the Knesset to go to a fourth election. The Knesset will automatically ban itself, and that's based on a law. So now Netanyahu is playing chicken with guns and actually pushing him to the corner again. He's trying to make it look like it's Gantz's fault that we're not passing the budget, while the fact is that Bibi is the one pushing for a short budget just for one year, and also it is because of his sentence. So why does Gantz want the two-year budget and Netanyahu wants the one-year budget? What's the real difference between the two? So it all comes to politics. But I'll start with the practical reason why now we should have a two-year budget. To be honest, it's not even a two-year budget. It's a year and a half budget, approximately, because in 2019, there was no budget in Israel, okay? The government and the bureaucracy is working on 7.5% of its original budget, which is insane, okay? So 2019, we didn't have a budget. 2020, we are already in July, and we still don't have a budget. So it's actually a budget not even for a year and a half, it's for a year and four months. So it makes sense that instead of running a budget now for four months and then going again in December, passing another one, you will have a longer period of time budget. So Israel has a year of three elections. They're not able to pass a budget within that year because they're having these elections. They can't form a government. They can only have transitional governments. Right. So now they actually formed an emergency government, got the two biggest parties together at that time to form this emergency government. They still can't even pass a budget. Because they're unwilling. It's not that they can't. There is a political aspect to it. So people need to understand. What's happening now is that Netanyahu is accused in three cases of corruption. The judges decided that the trial already started, that they're going to enhance the evidence stage and they will start meeting in January for three consecutive days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, until they're going to finish the evidence part. That's a really long period for a suspect to stay in court, handle his trial, and to run a government. What Bibi is trying to do is, once again, to shake the system. And if he's passing the budget for 2019 and not for 2020, they can break the coalition in December for not passing a budget, and he will stay the prime minister.
So a one-year budget for that. But he will be, once again, it's going to be a gap government. It's not going to be an elected government. Mm -hmm. So he stays in power. Yeah. So a one-year budget for Netanyahu means that he can dissolve the unity government, get rid of Gantz, destroy the COVID unity emergency government, if that's, you know, one the way you want to call unity it. The so, so-called unity government that was meant to fight COVID. So Netanyahu would be forced to call another election, but in the time between him dissolving the government for passing only a one-year budget as opposed to a two-year budget, in the time of the next election, it would give him some buffer time for his legal cases, right? It would give him some more time in the government. He'd be a transitional government, but it'd give him more time and power to deal with these legal issues. I think that it will give him excuses not to be in the court, you know, not to be in his trial and then to ask for another delay. For now, the judges did not accept his uh, attorney's request for a delay, and it puts Netanyahu under a lot of pressure because he was trying different ways to get out of this sentence without getting into a sentence in overall. He put a lot of pressure on the police and the attorney general, even though it took many years for the attorney general to make a decision about them. Eventually, he found out, you know, that Netanyahu should go to court and if he's innocent, to prove it in court. But now the judges are saying, we can't go on with this game anymore. We need to enhance this. So would it be Netanyahu's interest to call for a new election? Because he hasn't been able to get together a majority technically in the past three elections. Do you think a fourth election would be different where he'd be able to get the 61 members of the Knesset that he needs? So it is interesting and there is not an absolute answer because we eventually, you know, in poker game, you have a sentence saying that you count the cash in the staircase. You know, you count it after you finish the game and not uh, up front. So it's the same with politics. You know, when you're going to elections, what are the polls saying now? But you have no idea what people will put behind the curtain. And another thing, a period of three months between now and the election, you can never know what's going to happen. I think that Netanyahu was trying to prevent from it when he didn't know what's happening with his trial. But he thought he's going to have a bigger period of time between his uh, trial procedures moving on. And now things are changed for him. The thing with Netanyahu and why he has another interest in that is that at the moment, Bennett is getting some votes from the center. If he will go to the polls in Israel, the Likud is dropping to 30 mandates. It's by far the largest party, by the way. It's almost a third more than Gantz, which gets 18 mandates in the polls. And the one behind him is actually Naftali Bennett, who was able to get in with six mandates in the past elections. Now he's going to 16, and he is the leading so-called opposition to the government at the moment, as he's interviewing a lot about the coronavirus and how the government is not exactly handling it. So he gains a lot of votes from soft right who are not supporting Netanyahu, who dislike Netanyahu, and also a lot of centrics and a lot of, uh, we can call it self-employed and the uh, small businesses owners that can't find themselves in the left, but on the other hand, they can't vote to Netanyahu because they see him responsible. So what Bibi is trying to do, if uh, Bennett gets 16 mandates, and the Orthodox are getting 16 mandates, and the Likud is 30, then Netanyahu is at 62 mandates, and he can form a narrow government without uh, guns. So this would not be a unity government. This would be a right-wing government. Yeah. 
I mean, this government is not also a unity government, if to be exact. It's a right-wing orthodox government with a vine leaf on it, but... No. Uh, the vine leaf being Kaholavan, yes. and, uh, you know, maybe uh, one of the twigs hanging out is labor, um, you know. Maybe. The, the labor may rest in peace. Yeah. The labor is not even passing the 3.25% of... Uh, the threshold. Yes. The electoral threshold. So... Because Bibi is a really high-skilled politician, by far the most skilled politician in Israel, he has a killer instinct, what you can call, and politically he knows exactly what he's doing. On, on management, it's a different skill that we can discuss in a different time, and I have a lot of things to say about that, but politically-wise, he's doing the numbers. And for him, even if he's going to be with 30 mandates and he can form a government with less partners, you know, Bennett will never turn against him. That's why he can always, you know, step on him and tell him, you know what, I don't need you in my coalition like he did now, but he will <laughs> when, he, when he's needed and when he's called, Bennett will go into the government. So the right wing, you know, Likud is losing some support, but the, a lot of that's just going to a party that's further to the right than Likud because they trust Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, the further right parties, they, they think they're more capable of handling the coronavirus situation. So ultimately, the right wing bloc seems like they're doing just fine. The issue that I see is that Netanyahu successfully yet again blown up the opposition. You know, no one in Israel really seems to trust Benny Gantz, who ran on a platform of I'm never going to sit with Netanyahu as long as he's under trial, just immediately jump and uh, join a government with Netanyahu. So Who's the real opposition to Netanyahu at this point? Is there any opposition? And can anyone come out of the weeds, who's not in the political system already, to come out and challenge Netanyahu? So three to four months are not enough of a runway. And the left wing is always expecting for, you know, a knight on a white horse to arrive. One time it was Ami alone, then another time, you know, every time you have somebody else, and now you had guns. But the left wing, the center left, as they like to be called, because people are embarrassed to be called leftists in Israel these days, that's another great success of Netanyahu. Four months is not enough of a runway. So even somebody who has a great reputation, like Gadi Eisenkot, another chief of staff, will join the game. I doubt if he'll be able to gain enough power and run an efficient campaign. What needs to be done in the center-left, I would say to start building backbone, Amun Shidra. Like a foundation, a framework? Like a new foundation, yes. Because the Labour Party, who was the major center-left wing party, banned all of its flags along the time. And even when they had the potential of attacking Netanyahu as a Machanea Zioni, they had 24 mandates. They were such a lame opposition Combine it with their tend, you know, in the Labour Party, they always like to cut the leaders' heads off really fast. So they don't give them enough runway, by the way. They give them the time to make all of the necessary mistakes, then they cut off their heads. That's a great way to... Uh... <laughs> so, and you're saying this, one of the reasons being that Labour is, since year 2000, has just been, you know, one after another, someone leading the Labour Party, then they're out after a couple of years, and it's just been a cycle, whereas Likud, you know, it's really been the BB show yeah. since the uh, late 1990s. Yeah, Netanyahu, actually, he came in 1988. I mean, he started in the 80s here in the U.S., 
but he came back to Israel 1988. His uh, political godfather was uh, Misha Arens, may rest in peace, who was the ambassador to the US in Washington in the 80s. And then he was the minister of uh, defense in Israel. And he was uh, Netanyahu's uh, godfather in Israeli politics. Netanyahu has been there for a long time. And he brought a different type of conversation into the table. And he was able to delegitimize everybody who's talking, you know, something that is the opposite of what he's saying. And he really mastered in that. I mean, that's why people are afraid to be called leftists in Israel. Okay, every time they needed to find excuses. Of course I'm a Zionist. Okay, I'm a lefty Zionist. Like, okay, why do you need to identify? I mean, you live in Israel, you serve in the army. Why do you need to come up with any, you know, excuses or apologies to what are you standing for? Mm -hmm. And the fact is that the left wing has no foundations these days. They are also, I think that one of the biggest things with the left is that, uh, unfortunately, I'm saying that even though they bought a lot of important laws in Israel, or that, by the way, I'm going to say merits in specific. Merits being the merits, furthest left merits party. Merits is the furthest left party. and To the left of labor. Yes. And for many, they seem like an anti-Zionist party. So Meretz is a very socialistic party. They came out with a lot of laws that are actually helping the Likud supporters. But many of the Likud supporters who are aware of that will tell you eventually the bottom line. Yes, but they love the Arabs. Or yes, but they always talk about the Palestinians. And that's one of the biggest tragedies of the left wing in Israel because they care about a lot more other things, but when they're focusing, you know, what they're saying in the media, it's always about, oh, the poor Palestinians or the poor dead. No, people are tired. I'm sorry to say that as an Israeli, I'm saying it as most Israelis, even from the left, are tired of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's happening, by the way, around the world. People are tired of us, in overall, of us and the Palestinians. It's like they're thinking that it's two kids playing in the sandbox, like uh, two dumb kids, okay? Seriously. Must be a so, really messy sandbox if that's the case. It is. It is. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't want to know the borders of that sandbox, but it's definitely very complicated. But uh, I think that'd be a discussion to get into at another time. Definitely. So the left wing and the center, okay, even Yair Lapid is not gaining too much power. He is now standing with 16 mandates of Yeshatid. He's up to 18 mandates. The biggest thing, and that's the biggest question, if we're going to go to elections, I would guess that it's 10 to 15 mandates, if you look at the numbers now, okay, that have nobody to vote for. And the question is, what I think is going to happen, my assumption is that you're going to have some type of a professional's party that will come and say, oh, we're going to take care of the small businesses, we're going to take care of the economy, like economical party, that will take these mandates. Eventually, my hunch is that if we go to a fourth term, Netanyahu will still be prime minister. And it's a sad thing that eventually he's dragging the state of Israel to a fourth election, while uh, just for personal reasons mm -hmm. and not for national issues. But, you know, as you said, he's a very skilled politician. And if he sees that the numbers are in his favor, then he'll go for that fourth election. And one of the reasons being that the numbers are so in his favor is that there just is no real opposition to him anymore. Benny Gantz was that opposition. 
he joined the Netanyahu unity government to try and solve the COVID crisis. Since that government's been created, it seems like the COVID crisis in Israel has just gotten a lot worse. So, you know, it's just this big vacuum right now in the opposition. And Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party can't fill that void. And all these voters who are a little disenfranchised with Netanyahu and the Likud are just choosing a party that's further to the right of Netanyahu that would join Netanyahu's coalition anyways. So in a way, it's working out in Netanyahu's favor. And it's just a very unfortunate scene for the protesters who are against Netanyahu, the Israeli opposition, and most importantly, the Israeli left. Yeah. And eventually, a lot of people, as long as it doesn't hurt them, they will not think too much about what's happening. So for example, if we're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, one of the reasons that it's not an issue for Israelis at the moment is that if you'll check the numbers of terror acts in Israel, eventually the numbers dropped. So, you know, the army, along with the Palestinian Authority, kept the West Bank silent. You know, Netanyahu is credited a lot for that. I'm not sure if he's the address because eventually it was Mahmoud Abbas who also shared the same interest, like Netanyahu, of keeping things quiet. And maybe it's an idea for another episode for us to discuss, you know, Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas and, and what's going on, you know, with our neighbors and in Israeli politics, you know? Yeah, I think Abbas's age uh, and possibly, you know, we talk about a power vacuum on the Israeli left right now. I mean, I think a bigger issue that people need to consider is a possible power vacuum that might happen in the West Bank as a boss. I mean, he's an old guy. He's in his late 80s. He's had a plethora of health issues. You know, who's going to fill the vacuum of the Palestinian Authority, especially now that the Palestinian Authority is as weak as it's been in decades, you know, with everything going on with the Trump peace plan and so on and so forth. So the future of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I mean, People like in Israel don't want to see it as a non-issue, but once a boss goes, which is going to be within the next five to 10 years, it's going to reemerge as a big issue. It is. But that's why I'm saying people think a lot about the now and not about, you know, planning for the future. Mm -hmm. And eventually people change their minds or, you know, became more proactive only when the shit hit the fans. So I could, I could agree with that. And that's happening, by the way, all around the world, not just in Israel. So Israelis are not unique about that. Mm -hmm. But I think that the last couple of years were really peaceful for Israelis in a way, when I'm talking about Palestinian terror acts. So they tend to put the Palestinian issue aside. But in the long term, you know, we're talking about almost 5 million people in Gaza and the West Bank that you need to figure out a solution to what are you going to do with them. And I hope it's not going to get worse before it's going to get better until we figure out a solution. Yes, I really want to thank you for joining me today, Jeff. It's our first out of many records that we're going to do together. And thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Kobe. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.